We are in Acts chapter 3, beginning at verse 12 through the end of 26. My uh, past several sermons, we've read through a couple of chapters, but these are much longer. We're pushing 120 verses, where before we've been in the 80s, so I'm not going to do that this Sunday. <clears throat> Instead, I just want to briefly walk through the situation, show you what's going on, and then bring some applications. So I'm not going to be reading much of the text at all. Uh, before I do that, I want you to consider again what preaching is and what it's for. One of the kind of right mistakes, it has a right aspect, but it's ultimately wrong, that Christians often make is, well, let's say in music, Keith was up here leading us. One of the things that sometimes musicians say is, I just want to get out of the way. I don't want to become between the people and God. I don't want to, I, 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 don't, I want to worship in such a way that people don't even see me or think of me. And of course that's true in the sinful direction. We don't want to do it in such a way to draw attention to ourselves and be distracting and take glory from God. That's true. But that's not how God has set up the world. God has set up the world with people needing people to lead them. And the personality and demeanor and facial expression and voice and all of that are actually helpful to other humans. And so when Keith is leading or Pastor Mark is leading, we don't need them to get out of the way. We need them with their personality and themselves and their presence and their voice and their activity up there to lead us. Right? You understand what I mean? You see the error that can come there. We want to disembody our Christianity. Teachers do this. Pastors can do this. So when we're coming to something like Acts, that's historical narrative. We have a lot of history, true things happening here with people and places and events, and, and it's all very interesting. I find the book of Acts one of the most interesting books in the Bible. And uh, you might want to just kind of stay there in the history. I, I could do that. You just want to know the background and the names and who they are and what this little thing is and why that's there and, and so on and so forth. But that's, that's not what preaching is for. Preaching is for me, called by God to take the text, read it, read it, read it, read it, chew it, digest it, and then through my personality, my presence, my voice, my regurgitated food, you know, bring it to bear on your lives. Not so much the historical data, although we'll have some of that, but where is this meant to feed me? Where does this strike my conscience? Where does this show me where I'm out of line and displeasing to God? Where is comfort? And so as you consider why you're here, consider that you are here to hear from God through me. And through the work that God has done in me this past week. And to bear with me and all of my failings and all the things you wish I wouldn't say and all the things hopefully you wish I did say. And hear God's voice in his word for your life, for your nourishment, for your correction, 
for your comfort. That's what Acts 23.12 to 26.32 is for. To shape you, to convict you, to comfort you. And not just to titulate your mind, which is one of the temptations of preaching this kind of thing. Okay, let me pray, and we will take kind of an overview of uh, these couple of chapters. Father, you deal very well with us. Thank you for your faithfulness to your promises according to your word for us. We believe your commandments, but when we're afflicted, we sometimes go astray. Teach us to keep your word. You are good and do good, and so teach us to love your word that comes from you who are good. Our world is filled with lies. Sometimes our lives are filled with those who lie about us, but help us with our whole heart never to turn from your precepts. The heart of many in the world is unfeeling. Help our hearts to delight in your law. It is good that we're afflicted, that we may learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better than 10,000 pieces of gold and silver. May it be so for us now. In Jesus' name, amen. If you look at chapter 23, verse 11, we see Paul in <coughs> Roman uh, arrest, under Roman arrest, in Jerusalem yet. And Paul, of course, is like, this close to death. And uh, the Lord comes and encourages him, telling him, the Lord's right there, take courage. You've testified about the facts of the resurrection here. You'll also testify to them in Rome. So he reassures Paul. Our section, 2312 to the end of 26, is kind of the in-between Jerusalem and how Paul gets to Rome. In 2312... To 32, Paul is in Jerusalem. A uh, plan, a plot is hatched by the Jews to ask for the Roman authorities to bring Paul back to them to be on trial. And along the way, 40 of them have taken a vow of starvation uh, that they'll starve if they don't kill Paul. They're going to kill him. They're going to murder him. They're going to ambush him. God, in his care, has Paul's nephew overhear the plot. The nephew goes to Paul and tells Paul the plot. Paul Paul sends the nephew to the Roman centurion to tell him the plot. The centurion actually listens and takes action. whole bunch of soldiers take Paul from Jerusalem to Caesarea. Caesarea is still in Judea, but it is kind of the Roman provincial capital over all of Judea. The rest of our section, uh, the end of chapter 23 all the way to chapter 24, 25, and 26 is Paul and three separate trials, sort of, in Caesarea uh, under arrest for a period of a couple of years. And again, if you remember, the book of Acts, one of the main purpose, maybe the main purpose, is to show the world who is coming to the conclusion the Jews and the Romans, that Christianity is a great troublemaker. Christianity is awful. Christianity needs to be put down that this book exists as something of a legal argument saying, no, not so. Christians are innocent. Christians aren't the troublemakers. It's the Jews and the Roman authorities that are troublemakers. So just like Jesus at his cross, where as Jesus dies, what does the Roman centurion say? 
Surely this man is the Son of God. Out of the Roman authority mouth comes vindication. Throughout this trial and at the very end, they'll say, this guy's innocent. So Luke is writing to give to Jews, but even more so to give to Gentiles, so that out of their own mouths, they can hear that Christians aren't the problem. The Christians are innocent. The Christians are good citizens. The Christians aren't the problem. So Paul's in Caesarea. We see that in 2333, when Paul had come to Caesarea, the Roman centurion legate sent a letter to the governor outlining what's been going on. He uh, reads the letter, and in chapter 24, the Jews from Jerusalem traveled to Caesarea, Ananias, the high priest, some elders, and a lawyer, Tertullus, and they give their case. So Paul, in chapter uh, 24, is on trial before uh, Felix. At, At the end of the trial... Felix, in in verse 23, puts them off, puts the Jews off, saying, I'll decide this in the future. He keeps Paul in custody, but gives Paul some freedoms and allows Paul's friend and the church to take care of Paul. Why? Because he knows he's innocent. But you'll see in uh, verse 27 of chapter 4, he's kept in prison, in chains, with these freedoms, being innocent for two years. And it's noted that he keeps him in prison for two years for two purposes. One, he hoped to get some money out of him, 26. Two, to do some favors for the Jews. Again, very similar to Christ, as Pastor Jeff brought up. Now, uh, in the beginning of chapter 25, we see some higher, or I mean, uh, Felix is succeeded by a guy named Festus. So Paul comes under trial of Festus. Festus. The beginning of chapter 25, travels down to Jerusalem where the Jews grab his ear, want him to bring Paul back to Jerusalem so they can kill him again. A second ambush. Festus, by God's providence, though he wants to do favors to the Jews, puts him off again, travels back to Caesarea. The Jews follow him. Paul is on trial again. Paul, at the end of it, is asked by Festus, why don't you go back, if you've done nothing wrong, to Jerusalem to stand trial? And we see that in verse 9. Paul says, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I've done wrong, you know yourself that I've done all wrong. And then he appeals to Caesar in, in verse 11. Remember, Paul's a Roman citizen. One of the rights of Roman citizens is if they are falsely accused, that they can appeal right to Caesar. And they have a right to be sent to Caesar. And Caesar will actually heal, hear the case. So that's what Paul does. I appeal to Caesar. Festus, this is really shocking, actually. Festus says, you've appealed, you'll go. He wanted to do favors to the Jews. They had money motivations. But he's protecting Paul. Now, at that same time, after some days, the king Agrippa and his queen, his sister, pretty gross, uh, come to Caesarea uh, Festus lays out the case before him at the second half of 25, and at the end of it, Agrippa 
uh, wants to hear Paul's case, and so Festus brings in Paul at the end of chapter 25 before Agrippa with great pomp and circumstance. Um, and uh, Agrippa says to Paul at the beginning of chapter 26, speak for yourself. Let me, let me hear what you have to say. Defend yourself. So this is a third trial of sorts. Paul, we have recorded here in all of chapter 26 the entirety of his defense. Paul gives his background to his Judaism, even that he was a persecutor of Christians. He tells of his conversion in verses 12 to 19 that he saw on the way to uh, Damascus, this great light was blinded, scales fell off. He testifies to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is raised from the dead, to which Festus, who's present there in verse 24, exclaims in a loud voice, you're out of your mind. You're, you're so learned that you've gone right out of your brains. Paul doesn't address Festus, he addresses Agrippa, because Agrippa has some understanding of these things, and he tries to convert Agrippa right there in front of them all, the king. He tries to convince Agrippa to become a Christian. Agrippa responds in verse 28, in such a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Now, that language there is like, he is being persuaded. (laughs) And Paul responds, let me read these verses, 29 to the end. Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but all also who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them, and when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So again, right out of the mouths of the highest authority under Caesar, this guy's innocent. Completely innocent. So we see, as Pastor Jeff pointed out, that Christians are those who follow Christ. Paul's arrest and trial is very similar to Christ's arrest and trial. Uh, Paul isn't here executed. He will be executed later in Rome. But this is just another way that the Holy Spirit, through the apostles, reminds us of what you can expect as a Christian. We, we, we shouldn't expect ease and comfort. Praise God when we get it. But... If we follow one who is treated like this in the world, what can we, else can we expect? So we're not only seeing the innocence of Christians, and Christians should be innocent in the world, but though you're innocent, you should expect difficulties and trials and lies and slanders and betrayals and so on, if you're willing to follow Jesus. And so young people, if you're going to follow Jesus, You're going to have to say no a lot where the world says yes, and you'll be hated for it. You'll be mocked for it. You'll be put out for it. And you should expect nothing less. Parents, if you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to have to say no to your children where they desperately want you to say yes. And you know as a parent the wisdom of saying no there, the the goodness of it. You have to obey God rather than your children, and you'll pay for it. This is what we should expect as Christians. This is written all over these verses. And written all over these verses is, God is near and will take care of you. 
That's one of the main things I want you to see. But before we see that, what hit me most as I was digesting these is the beginning of, uh, of our section here in, in, in 23.12, we have this plot. Now, how many of you have fasted in your life? You know what fasting is, right? Fasted? Come on, raise them up. You're righteous. Put them up there. <laughs> fasting is typically foregoing food for a period of time for spiritual purposes. I, I want to deny my flesh. I want to say no to a, a good thing because I want a greater thing. I want God. I want a hunger and thirst after God, so I don't want anything else. I want God. That's what fasting's for. And sometimes maybe you'll fast for the healing of somebody or some big spiritual purpose. These guys are fasting to murder somebody. Isn't that way? I mean, isn't that weird? I mean, we can't... I don't fast very often, so I'm not righteous in this, but to get Christians to fast is very difficult for a good purpose. I doubt I could get you to fast in order to kill somebody. We have 40 people, 40 men, who go to the Jewish leadership and say, we have put ourselves under a vow that we will murder this dude or die from starvation. And as I'm reading that, this one thing hits me. We are very, 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 very wicked in sin. The bounds of our sinfulness is none. (laughs) Can you imagine this? And so we see, so what I want you to do here is, this is you. This is one of the things the Bible consistently does, is we lack the faith to believe our depth of capacity to do awful, awful, awful things, to think awful, awful, awful things, to say terrible, terrible, terrible things. And you see an example like this, and you might think, well, I've never done that. And then... Because we're Christians, the next thing you should think is that Jesus once told a parable of this Pharisee and this poor, sick man who's off in the corner beating his chest and ripping out his hair. God, have mercy on me. I'm not worthy. And the other guy's saying, yeah, I'm not glad I'm not like that guy. And our response to this is, man, I'm not like that. (laughs) And like... The worst thing Jesus has to say about your sinfulness is us saying, I'd never do that. (laughs) And so here again, we see our capacity, fallen in Adam, to do horrendous things and say horrendous things and think horrendous things. And Christians cannot be bothered to think that we would ever do anything this bad. Because the one place you can't be a sinner is in church. In the world... You can boast about certain sins, and it'll give you street cred. If you boast about how much alcohol you can handle, and how many men or women you've bedded, or whatever, you know, you can be looked at as something. You can confess your sin out there. You can't do it in here. Because Christians have to be perfect, kind of. There's certain sins we're okay with saying because that'll give you street cred in here. We keep it general typically. I'm, I'm not perfect, but 
my marriage isn't perfect, but we equivocate because we don't have the faith to believe this. So my experience in reading this is, my God, my sinfulness, your sinfulness, our sinfulness really knows no bounds. So one of the things I was thinking of this is, um, now there's more sin than this in here. We have the second plot. We have the Gentile leader's desire to get money and get some political favors from the Jews. We have them declaring from their own mouths that he's innocent but not releasing him, keeping him in prison for two years. The sin in these verses is, is staggering. We're doing premarital counseling with three couples right now. And one of Mandy and I do most of it together. And one of the things we try to do in premarital counseling, because if you can remember, if you're married and you can remember back to those days when you, before you were married, you overlook basically everything in the person you're about to marry. Nothing really bothers you. At least not much. You just overlook it. You just won't deal with it. Because, oh, she's so cute. That won't bother me. And then you get married. And you don't overlook it anymore. And then you discover things that you didn't see that you're not willing to overlook anymore and you come into conflict. And you're very surprised at the conflict. You're very surprised at the disagreement. You're very surprised that the person you married is a terrible, awful, no good sinner. And, 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 you, and you wouldn't believe that before you got married. You're surprised at how difficult marriage is. Is that true? Or are you all liars? I mean, do you understand this? And so... When I became a pastor, I was completely taken aback at the sinfulness of others towards me. I had in my first church a part-time music director and a full-time youth pastor. When I was candidating at the church, they were working behind the scenes to get people to vote against my coming. In the first week of me being there, the part-time music director came to my office and yelled in my face that I don't want to be your friend. <laughs> Out loud. Yelling very loudly. The uh, full-time youth pastor had asked for a congregational meeting where he was planning to tell the congregation how evil and proud I was in order to get them to fire me. And that was just the big, I I just had no capacity to understand that people could do this to other people. And I wasn't perfect, uh, you know, because I'm good. But I have a Bible full of examples of pastors being betrayed, lied about, you know, lives destroyed, murdered, and I didn't believe a word of it when I became a pastor. I, I wouldn't believe a word of it. It happened to Jesus, it's not going to happen to me. It happened to Paul, it's not going to happen to me. Why? Why don't premarital couples, why don't pre-pastoral pastors, why don't we believe the doctrine of sin? We don't, do we? Do you believe it about yourself? This really matters. This is 
why we talk about sin so much. I, I've heard some of you say, I've never been in a church that talks about sin so much. And I just want to say, there are only two chapters in the Bible that have no explicit or implicit mention of sin. Only two. Can you name them? Genesis 1 and 2. You can't preach any other chapter in the Bible without either several explicit mentions of sin or a lot of implicit sin. It's all over the place. Why? So we hope in God's grace. So we see our need for Jesus Christ and give him the glory so that we're prepared to be parents and believe that this little bundle of joy, which is a great blessing of God, has a nature that is unbounded in its, his or her ability to sin and to destroy themselves and others. So when you join a church, you come knowing that everybody else here is as slippery and snakily as I am. And they're all saved by the same grace that I'm saved by. And they all need it just like I need it. So that we learn to fight our sin with some kind of zeal. These men are fighting with a vow of starvation to murder somebody. Can't we at least have that much zeal to fight our own sin? We have right expectations. Paul says in chapter 24, verse 16, I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. I take pains to have a clear conscience. I take pains to fight my sin towards others. He knows his capability to sin. He knows his capacity. He refers to himself as the chief of sinners. He says very autobiographically in Romans 6 and Romans 7 that I desire to do good, but this I don't flesh is always fighting against me and I often don't do the good I want to do but the evil I don't want to do. The evil I don't want to do, I do and the good I do want to do, I don't. But he is taking pains to fight it, to have a clear conscience of God and others. He's taking pains. We have to have the faith to believe the biblical teaching of how There's really no unbounded death for our capacity of wickedness and sin like these guys, just like them. So we take pains to fight and say no to ourselves for the sake of others and to the glory of God. But right along with that, this clear picture of the depths of our depravity, we get a very bright sunshine glimpse of God's great care for his people. Now, you've probably had times in your life where God's care for you was just very obvious. Maybe it was a car accident where you should have been killed or maimed or disabled and you walked away. And you come out, oh my, there's just no way that I should have walked away from this. God's providential care was very obvious. Um, I was fishing in Canada with my father one time big long lake we're at the far end from the camp an aluminum boat and a big storm come up and if you've ever fished when a big storm is coming up what do you do you keep fishing because that's when it's going to get good and this storm came up and there's lightning bolts everywhere and i am scared witless 
And my dad is, is a big lake with bays all over, and he's coming back, and I hear him say, Jeremy, I don't know where I'm going. <laughs> and we get back to the camp a bit later in the midst of the storm, and he said, Jeremy, I, I got to tell you what happened. I was boating, and I saw, like, there was two ways we could go. And he said, I saw a seagull this way, and I went that way because I thought God was telling us where to go. And that kind of providential, obvious, hey, dummy, go this way, not that way. And we see that in, in these verses, God's providential care. When we talk about God's providence, what we mean is God has created all things, but God hasn't stepped back after creating and going, you're on your own. He didn't hit the start button and then kind of leave it to the inmates to run the asylum. God's providence is the biblical teaching that God wills, governs, upholds, provides, cares for his creation down to the most intimate of details. It's a really wonderful biblical truth, right? We love this truth. You say it all the time, especially when bad things are happening. What do you say? God's in control. It's, those are three words of great comfort. That's the doctrine of providence. God's in control. God's in control. All of this is under his control. And I know he's good, and I know he's wise, and I know I can trust him, and God's in control. Now that general truth is true of all of creation, all of the universe. God's in control over everything. But in the Bible, that is applied specially uniquely to God's people in a way that it doesn't apply to those who are not his people. This is a great comfort to Christians when God says at the end of Roman 8, nothing in all of creation can separate you from my love in Christ Jesus. That, that means that God is going to providentially order and watch over and care for your life such that even though he's going to bring very difficult things, nothing can take you from him because he's caring for you in a way that he won't care for any others. When Jesus taught us to pray, what did he teach us to pray? Our Father who is in heaven. That is declaring at the beginning of our prayer that we have a Father who is attentive to me, his child, he's in heaven. He doesn't lack anything. There's no power. There's nothing he doesn't know. And all of his godness is directed at my care like a father for a child. And we see that throughout this text. God is attentive to his people. God cares for his people. Paul, in this plot to ambush and murder him, right? by chance his nephew overhears the plot. By chance the Roman centurion is willing to listen to this little Jewish kid. By chance, the Roman centurion is willing to take military action to protect Paul's life. It's not chance. This is God's providence, his special attentive care for his people. In 24-23, God providentially provides the Roman leader Felix who has monetary and political reasons not to do this, to make Paul's imprisonment as easy as possible. He gives him freedom. He invites family and friends into care for his needs. That's, that's, isn't that nice of God? Isn't that kind of God to oversee that detail of care for Paul? And on and on and on we have it. 
Now, one of the questions you might ask, if you're thinking, if God is such a providential Lord, why did he let Paul get into the mess in the first place? You understand what I mean? Paul, in prison, unjustly, having to be interrogated these many times, life in danger, in chains, could say, God, why me? If you care so much for me, if you are the God I know you are, in control of everything, why did you do this? What? Why? And so what do you do with that? Maybe you're there now. I don't know. Well, let's let Paul's example. You'll notice Paul doesn't, at least he's not recorded, asking that question. One of the things we have to do as Christians is deny ourselves. And one of the things we have to deny ourselves is our own questions. There are times when you just have to say no. That's not a question to ask God. Rather, be thankful for all the care he has provided you. Be thankful for the nephew. Be thankful for the freedom of Felix. Be thankful for Roman citizenship that spared my flogging and my life. That's one thing we have to do in those situations is is we do have to restrain our curiosity. Now, We do see throughout Scripture, particularly in the Psalms, many times where God's saints in the midst of Paul-like suffering cry out to God, How long, O Lord? Why are you doing this? Why do the wicked prosper? Why do those who are doing wrong seem to have it easy and comfortable and wealthy and fat? And here I am languishing. How long? But in that plea... What are you declaring? You're declaring that you know that your circumstances seem to be incompatible with the fatherly goodness of God who is in control of all things. And you are expressing hope that in His timing, He will relieve your suffering. And that's what Christians do. We look at God the Father who is in heaven and we look at Him and we say, How long, O Lord? And in that cry of faith, of despair of faith, we are proclaiming faith in the God that we know loves us and cares for us, and in His timing, we'll put an end to this misery. In His timing. And yet, until that time, we are content to look at Him in faith and plead with Him for its end. And so we endure in it. We endure endure these trials And the ultimate reason we endure these trials is because of the main hope in these chapters. It is the hope of the resurrection of the dead. In each of Paul's trials and his interrogations, he consistently brings it right to that fact. I am on trial for the hope of the Jews that is now the hope of the Gentiles that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and that all of faith in him will be raised as well. That's our hope that we will be raised from the dead. In chapter 24, verses 15 and 21, he hopes in God, implied Christ's resurrection. In chapter 24, 21, resurrection from the dead. In chapters 
in, in chapter 26, verses 6 to 8, hope given by the promise of God to the fathers of resurrection. It's the hope of the 12 tribes of Israel. And that hope is that God raises the dead. In chapter 26, verses 12 to 18, Paul sees the resurrected Christ. He knows that forgiveness of sins is ours because Christ was raised from the dead. In chapter 26, 23, Paul says that our hope is that Christ was the firstborn among many to be raised from the dead. We're this close to Easter, brothers and sisters. Do you believe that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead? And do you know that that is the only hope that we have in life or in death, is that all who have that hope in him will be raised with him? This is our hope. This is Paul's hope. This helps us bear our awful capacity for sin. Don't you get tired of your temptation and your wicked desires. Isn't it exhausting? Are you not so tired of yourself that you have to fight this fight? You just wish it was over, please. And it will be. There will be a day when you breathe your last when that fight will be finished. And you won't desire the things that you desire anymore. You'll desire what's right and beautiful and pure. And that you'll do. There'll be a day when Christ returns and you'll be reunited with your flesh and blood. But this flesh and blood won't desire what it used to desire. And you will love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you will love your neighbor yourself. And you'll be free, finally. That's our hope. And we fight now for that day coming. But if we don't have hope for that day, then we will not fight now. And so that must be your hope. We spoke of the providential care of God. And what is the providential care of God but get you to from this day till that day of resurrection? Our hope in God's care for us is that He will raise us from the dead with His Son. That's our hope. That's our joy. That's our endurance and everything we're going to. That's our reason to say no to all the things we know we should say no to. Because we will be raised from the dead. Because we will stand before God and give an account for everything. And so we fight now. And so are you willing to fight now? Let me apply that in two ways and then we're done. First, every person you'll meet on the face of this earth is an eternal soul that will stand before God. Paul, this Paul, is betrayed by his own countrymen to the extent that they're willing to starve to death or murder him. The book of Romans was written after this. And do you remember what he says about his Jewish uh, descendants in Christ in Romans chapter 9? I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off for Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. These people who have done such great harm to him, he sees as people who will give an account to God, and he wishes that he himself could be cursed and cut off from Christ if it would be to their salvation. And so, work in yourself this renewed thinking that every person you live with in your home, every person you'll see in this church, every person you'll meet at work, every person you'll rub shoulders with at school, every person in your workplace, 
at Triggs, everywhere, is a human being created in God's image who will exist forever in heaven or in hell and treat accordingly. Parents, this is great motivation in your parenting. Both to do the hard things you know you need to do and to be tender where you know you need to be tender because those little souls will last forever. Second, I said Easter's coming. He is risen. Just giving you a little warm-up. How many of you have heard that Christ is raised from the dead before? Yeah? How many of you does that anything to your internal guts? Does that move you? Christ has been raised from the dead. When I was a kid, my dad took me to sunrise service where we got donuts. Then we went to the regular service. And Jen, was there breakfast? Yeah, I thought so. Pancake and whatever, breakfast afterwards. We had to dress up different on Easter. It was special. The church I was raised in only had uh, organ for music and every once in a while piano accompaniment. But on Easter, brass instruments. Trombone and a trumpet. Is that right? Yeah? Easter was very special in the church and the home I grew up in. The preacher had a little bit extra. So what I just want to say is, like, think like that when we're coming up to Easter. Parents, make it special for your kids. Look at the resurrection as that thing in our Christian faith, which is that thing. It's, it, it's the doctrine of doctrines for us. It's the thing of things for Christians. It's, it's the everything. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if there's no resurrection from the dead, then all of this is dumb. If the dead aren't raised, but the dead are raised, Christ has been raised, we will be raised, and so make Easter a thing. Cultivate a heart, affection, joy, specialness for this reality that Christ has been raised from the dead, because in him is our justification. Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us to appreciate, have faith, to see the depths of our wickedness and sin and awfulness so that we might see the glories of Christ and his resurrection and the freedom it has given us from that sin, from condemnation, to give us righteousness and to welcome us into your presence in heaven. God, help us to see, have faith for the times of difficulty where we might question your care. And to see by faith the record of testimony of your great care and to be grateful for all the little ways you care for us. And so, God, please apply this word. Um, May what we've heard that is right be applied to our lives really and truly to be lived and what hasn't been helpful, God, to be taken away. And so, God, please bless us. In Jesus' name, amen.